Hello, welcome to Translating the World with Rainer Scholte, a new podcast of the Center for Translation Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. I am Sarah Valente, Visiting Assistant Professor of Arts and Humanities and guest host for today's episode. I'm delighted to introduce our special guest for today, Dr. Thomas Huxema. Huxema is Professor Emeritus at New Mexico State University, where he taught for 35 years in the English department and served as director of the Honors College for 16 years. He is a founding member of the American Literary Translators Association, which our very own Dr. Reiner Scholte co-founded in 1978, and Huxema served as president of Alta from 1989 to 1991. He has been a contributing editor and member of the Advisory Board of Translation Review since its inception at the University of Texas at Dallas in 1978, as well as a consultant for the Center for Translation Studies at UTD since 1975. And in that capacity, he has taught translation workshops and served as guest lecturer on The Bible as Literature and the Bible in English Translation, which is the topic of our conversation today. begin by telling us about how you became involved with translation and the work of translation studies? Uh, translation was introduced to me by Reiner Schulte as uh, one of my first professors at Ohio University. Um, one of the first classes I took was a, a world literature class uh, with Dr. Schulte, and that sparked an interest in uh, the definitive texts of some of the major modern writers, and he brought translation issues to the discussion in class. So it, it was part of our uh, literary critical approach to look at the translation issues involved in some of these texts, including Camus and Sartre and um, many uh, Kafka, and that sparked my interest uh, early on in the program. Wonderful. And then how did you become interested in studying about, and then later on, of course, teaching about Bible as translation. You know, you are one of the foremost prominent scholars at the forefront study of the Bible as translation. You have created courses at New Mexico State University under this rubric of Bible as literature. I'm really interested in learning more about, you know, what drew you to this area and what was that beginning like for you? When I began teaching modern literature at New Mexico State, uh, there was a class in modern existential writing, and I thought I would put the book of Job in the curriculum because uh, Job, it, it's a book about existential matters. Um, why do people suffer and, and does God hear people when they uh, suffer and go through privation? And I wanted to see how students would react to it. And I found that the reaction was dynamic. Um, when they knew a Bible book was being discussed, um, it, the classroom atmosphere changed completely. And it divided into two groups. There were students who knew their Bible very well. They knew it from home and church, and they wanted to know what a professor was gonna do with their holy book. And then the other group knew nothing about the Bible and thought that their education was not complete unless they had some understanding of, of a Bible text. Um, I brought that to the classes at uh, the honors program 
and began adding other works, Ecclesiastes, for example. And then we began looking at uh, Genesis and, and the gospel format. But my interest came from having studied at the Near East School of Archaeology in Jerusalem, um, where I studied classical languages and um, cultures, and was able to work on an archaeological dig at Dothan, which is where Joseph was said to have been sold into slavery by his brothers, thrown into a pit. And uh, Dothan proved to be a, a very important site in uh, Palestinian archaeology. So I took that interest from the work in Jerusalem to my work in the classroom and found that teaching the Bible really got students' attention and I could uh, teach them about literary critical methodology by dealing with those, those kinds of books. Uh, eventually, it became a Bible as literature, a small curriculum where I had uh, priests and ministers from the community come in uh, I asked them to come in and speak about their approach, and the students by this time had a critical understanding of the issues and made some of these campus ministers very uncomfortable, and they went to the administration to have this taken out of a public university, that we shouldn't be studying the Bible, and uh, the vice president uh, supported me, and so the courses continued and they were very popular. I would say my best experience was team teaching with Rabbi Joseph Klein, an eminent rabbi and scholar, and uh, he and I taught uh, several years together, and it was uh, a very, very uh, important uh, breakthrough, I think, in, in teaching the Bible that we had representation from both sides. Wonderful. That that it sounds like a wonderful class I wish I could have taken. <laughs> it's really wonderful. And you know, you already touched on something that I want to ask you about. You know, of course there are endless numbers of translations of the Bible and in numerous ways in which people relate to them. For example, I often think about my own relationship of how I ever, you know, was introduced to the Bible as a young kid reading it in Portuguese, which is my first language. Then when we moved to the U.S., being introduced to the King James Version. And then most recently, because of my, you know, academic development in Jewish literature and Holocaust studies, I became very interested in the Hebrew um, scriptures themselves. And all of these experiences for me personally have been quite enriching when reading and studying and finding new ways of interpreting the Bible but we also know that for many people, they become quite attached to a single translation as the translation. So I think in many cases, for example, the King James has this very special place in, in the American canon, I would say, or in the English language canon. Uh, would you give us just a brief overview about the history of translation of the Bible into the English language, as well as what are some of the more shocking or surprising moments in that history of translation and the dissemination of the Bible throughout, you know, the centuries or the years? That's a big, big question, a big topic, yes. sir. <laughs> um, John Wycliffe, uh, an English scholar, translated the Bible into English in 1384. He was the first to give uh, speakers of English access to the Bible in their own tongue. Um, he translated Jerome's Vulgate, and he rendered it in Middle English. Most people were illiterate at that time and could not read it, but he at least initiated the 
the era of translating the entire Bible into the language of English speakers. Many translations followed that. Uh, I just mentioned John Tyndall in 1526 because the King James translators made use of Tyndall's language uh, a, a great deal. The King James Bible was a monumental achievement. Uh, the purpose of that Bible was to bring together the Anglican, uh, Protestant, and Catholic versions of the Bible into one so that there would be one harmonious uh, translation. And that uh, exercise started in 1604 with 47 translators in a group. Uh, most of these big translation projects are done by groups. It was finished in 1611, and it still is a, a prominent translation in many churches. Um, and it was the translation of Wycliffe, Tyndall, Coverdale, John Calvin, and the King James that allowed people to read the Bible in, in their own language, English. And that, of course, contributed to the momentum of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, there have been hundreds of partial and complete English renditions of the Bible, representing Jewish, Catholic, Anglican, Protestant interests. Um, I would say the Jewish and Catholic and Anglican faiths strive for some unanimity, some degree of scholarly consensus when they are presenting translations to their believers. Among English-speaking Catholics, there's a real attachment to the old Douay translation of 1582. And uh, nowadays, there's a strong preference among Catholics for the Jerusalem Bible translation, mm -hmm. which is actually translated from a French edition. But the, the, the enterprise of Bible translation continues, and there are, as I said, hundreds of them. Um, there's the Quaker Bible unchanged since 1764. The Jehovah's Witnesses decided to translate the Bible in the 1950s and called it the New World Translation. Um, the most ludicrous translation of the Bible, I guess, in the last 50 years would be the Personal Promise Bible, which uh, allows you to customize 7,000 times to include your own name and life circumstances, uh, as in uh, the Lord is Bernie's shepherd, or woe unto you, Dallas. Um, Bible translation is a market-driven enterprise in the United States, unfortunately, I think, um, because serious translations that have evolved over the centuries are cherry-picked by editors for topical themes and then marketed to niche audiences. Um, I am asked all the time by students and public groups, what's the best translation? What's the most authoritative? Which one do you recommend? And I, I, I always say the, the question is not what translation is best. The question is what is the worst attempt at Bible translation? Because there are so many examples of that as well. What are some of the moments that have, you know, historically been misinterpreted and that have led to real consequences in the different faiths, right? That that have guided the way in which these different denominations then follow the faith based on that mistranslation um, of, of the specific translation that they're using of the Bible. If you could just speak about some of these specific moments and what, what comes to your mind? 
That's a very uh, problematic and, and uh, fraught area, as you, as mm-hmm. you can imagine. Right. Um, people get attached to a translation and they want to stay with it. They, they buried their father or their grandfather with quotes from the King James. They want to hang on to the, the, the traditions that are associated with these various translations. The problem is scholars keep finding new manuscripts and new ways to interpret the manuscript tradition. There are about 5,300 fragments, uh, codexes, papyri, um, uh, inscriptions of, of the Bible that we have over the centuries. Most of the translations people read are based on manuscripts that are not the most authoritative in the tradition. Um, the discovery of Codex Sinaiticus in 1844 was a discovery of the entire Old Testament and New Testament in handwritten Greek. And that should have changed the way the Bible was translated, uh, both in Judaism and Christianity. Um, but that Sinaiticus remains uh, a museum piece and has not been incorporated in, in, into biblical translation, even though it is 300 years from the proposed time of Christ's life. Now that's as close as we can get, other than a few fragments of papyri that are from the second century um, CE common era. Um, the translation uh, of the Bible depends on scholars doing honest, hard work with manuscripts that are the most authoritative, and that would be the closest to the source. Uh, one really spectacular example that, that bothers people, but the earliest manuscripts uh, we have of the Bible do not have Jesus saying seven things. They have him saying just two, take care of my mother, and I thirst. Then scholars began to see that copyists added a saying. They added an, another saying until they got to the magic number seven. And those additions were done by copyists, clerics, priests, whoever, over the centuries because they thought it would be good to have Jesus say certain things from the cross. Um, and when they reached the numerological perfect number seven, they stopped. But this makes people very nervous when the translation is changed because the study of the manuscript tradition has to be changed after scholarly research is done. I really like a phrase that you used in the text you sent me where you said something along the lines of translation of the Bible cannot proceed or be accurate if the literary dimensions and cultural borrowings evident in all 66 texts are not understood. Would you please share with us a little bit more about this question of cultural borrowing? Because we know that the act of translation has everything also to do with the cultures that are involved in the languages that we're translating, right? Well, the Bible contains a, a wide range of literary genres. Uh, about 40 have been identified. Uh, many of them are familiar people, proverbs, poetry, wisdom literature, gospels, 
um, genealogies, epistles, things like that. Um, the translator also has to deal with smaller units uh, within those large uh, literary structures, including creation stories, uh, allegories, miracles, hero legends, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and there is originality in the way the Bible uh, has developed these literary genres, but there's also very much wholesale cultural borrowing going on of characters, stories, uh, and formats. Uh, at every stage of biblical history, Jews and Christians were surrounded by great empires. They were the minority group, uh, Assyrian, Persian, Hittite, uh, Babylonian, the Greeks, the Romans. Um, and with no concept of uh, plagiarism or copyright laws, um, the ancient cultures all borrowed and adapted their sacred texts and rituals from the groups around them. And the biblical authors were no different. Um, maybe the most common uh, example that people are aware of, uh, the story of Noah and the flood, is clearly a direct borrowing from the Epic of Gilgamesh, composed 1,000 years earlier than the biblical accounts. Um, the book of Proverbs is, has sections that are word for word from the Egyptian book of the dead. Um, and in fact, the creation story of Genesis bears very strong resemblances to the Babylonian Enuma Elish, which dates to at least a thousand years before any biblical accounts are, are uh, noted. So I think when we're dealing with the translation of the Bible, you have to realize that the literary construction of the text is often a key to uh, how to approach it as a translator, as a scholar, as a reader. That's very interesting. And what about these 1,500 words that are used only once? What about these words that don't really have any kind of equivalent or that the translators didn't know what these words actually meant? That seems to po pose a real problem for the question of translating into um, English or to any other language, really. Yes, uh, they are called the hypox legomena. Um, the Jewish Encyclopedia cites 1,500 hypox legomena in the Hebrew Bible, or the Old Testament, as Christians call it. Uh, the Greek phrase means something said only once. Uh, 1,500 times in the Old Testament, the translator encounters a word that is only used once, and the meaning is not clear. Uh, there, there's no reference point for it. it. It exists by itself. Jewish scholars and translators of the Hebrew Bible tend to footnote these outlier words. They honestly acknowledge that in many cases, a precise translation is not possible. Protestant translators always render these words, even though they have absolutely no linguistic verification for them. This speaks to the notion of, is everything in the Bible literally true? Well, since we don't have any original documents and it was the Bible is written in ancient Hebrew, Koine Greek and Aramaic, it's very hard for an English translation to be literally true in every respect. So when someone says that every word is literally true, and I look at the Hapax Legomena, 
I take it to mean they're saying they ardently believe that the message in the Bible is true, but to put pressure on each word in the English Bible to be literally true is to ignore linguistic reality. That is incredible. And I think it's something that, like you said, in the Jewish translations, I have always appreciated that we have the footnotes where it says unknown word or something along these lines, but that at least acknowledges that the text that we're reading is in translation. And I think that this is something also very interesting that you probably can speak to as far as the reception of the students in your classes, where for many people who grew up in a religious environment, the idea that the Bible is in translation is not at the forefront of one's experience with reading the Bible itself. Very true. It's hard for people to acknowledge that the Bible is a translated document, and that means someone had to interpret, um, right. uh, both scholars and translators had to do a lot of interpreting and exp expertise brought to it and the scholarship um, before the Bible could be rendered. In fact, it, it really bothers people with things like the Hippox Legomena because there is also guesswork. Um, there are many places in the uh, Protestant translations where they come across words that they don't know uh, in the manuscripts and they take a guess. Um, now that's not generally known or shared by ministers or uh, anyone in, in a community of believers. Um, it just happens to be a, a fact that uh, I, I say to my students sometimes, think of the Bible as a fluid document in some respects still being written because who do you, who could be digging up something right now in Judea, um, digging up a manuscript that's going to change everything about what you think of a particular book uh, in the Bible. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls, everyone thought when they were uncovered in 1947, that that would lead to a retranslation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, because what was found there was 1,000 years older than the Aleppo Code, the previous uh, basis for the translation of the Hebrew Bible. What was found at Qumran was 1,000 years older, wow. and not much has happened to the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament as a result of the uh, discoveries at Qumran. I think scholars, ministers, um, translators tread very lightly when they have something like the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Codex Sinaiticus, because what if it contradicts a, an article of faith? What if a doctrine is called into question that has been in the church for 600, 800, 1,000 years? So some of these discoveries are uh, monumental, but it's surprising how little effect some of them have had on the new translations that people have access to. Definitely. I mean, one example that comes to mind is the translation of, um, of Mary as a virgin versus as a young woman. <laughs> would, you, would you talk a little bit about this? Well, uh, a lot of people know of this, uh, and, it, and it's quite controversial, especially in Catholic circles, but it comes from Isaiah 7, 14, and the Hebrew word in the passage is Alma, A-L-M-A-H, um, and it 
it means young woman. A young woman shall conceive and bear a son. The earliest Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which is called the Septuagint, was completed in 250 BCE, 250 years before the birth of Christ, roughly. And it translates young woman, or Alma, as Parthenos, or, which is virgin. So it's basically a mistranslation 2,200 years ago by an unknown Greek translator that established Mary's virgin status. And that became an iconic feature of Catholic Christianity. Uh, many Protestant English translations of this passage have already removed the word virgin. And you will see young woman in Isaiah 7, 14. There's also uh, a particular instance I, I, I would also like to mention in, in relation to uh, just how mistranslations can lead to, uh, to, to real misunderstandings about fundamental articles of faith. Um, Job 13.15 has a vowel placement because uh, ancient Hebrew was a, a language of consonants, and so the vowels had to be added. And... The vowel placement in Job either in one passage leaves him with hope or completely without hope. In one version, it says, I will hope in him, meaning in God. Then another version says, he has no hope. And it all depends on a vowel that is inserted between a sequence of consonants. And two mainstream Protestant translations disagree on a fundamental point of faith at a critical point in the book of Job. And it's based on a diacritical or an accent mark that is placed by scholars in, in some cases saying he is hopeless and others he has hope. Um, and so, you know, the research into the Hebrew language itself is a, a big part of Bible translation. And it goes on, it continues and uh, they do not always have a definitive solution to some of these problems. It sounds like the classic problem of translation itself, right, Dr. Shota? Definitely. I would like for Tom to talk a little about one of the other mistranslations that is also in his text. Had something to do with the sea? Well, yeah, the Red Sea, um, that has been changed now for, for some time. The, the escape from Egypt by the uh, Hebrews, uh, and, and let me clarify, I say Hebrews, Israelites, Jews. They were the Hebrews when they uh, migrated from the Mesopotamian area, 2000 BCE, when they had a kingdom and had kings and, ha and had nation status. And Jews, after the uh, diaspora, after the, the great exile into Babylon at 5, 586 BC. Um, when the Israelites escaped uh, from Egypt, the, the traditional reading is that they went through the Red Sea and it parted. And uh, we have the movie, the Cecil B. DeMille movie with Charlton Heston playing Moses. Um, it turns out that it was a mistranslation, that uh, it was Sea of Reeds, not the Red Sea. And early manuscripts confirm that the Israelites would have escaped through a marshland and the chariots that were pursuing them would have bogged down in that marshland. 
so the miracle of the seas parting is really a small narrative step for the great storytellers of Israel. Um, and many English translations now have acknowledged that that error and uh, made the change. I find this absolutely fascinating, particularly that example of how the concept of a situation, a religious situation, is totally undermined and totally wrong by a, a translation mistake. And not only that, later on in the translation history, quite a few of the translators, because they have translated religious texts, actually have gotten into serious trouble, including some of them being killed when they came to Rashti. Absolutely. And, and I think this is a very a point in your, uh, your text that I thought I was very attractive to, and I probably some other mistakes in the Bible, and I always wonder how the people, uh, even students, begin to react to this, because they were told that this is absolutely not true. And I'm sure you have had any incidents in your classes when you taught that? Uh, definitely. And some of the mistranslations are, are not consequential. They're fun, like Red Sea, Sea of Reeds. But it, it calls into question, again, that the, if, if you believe it's a sacred text and it has no mistakes in it, that makes some people nervous. But the fact is these, these mistranslations, mistakes can be documented. Um, and as I say, some of them are fairly uh, uh, benign. Uh, the land of Canaan, as described by Joshua, was uh, that it was flowing with milk and honey. And this phrase has come into our language as a cliche. But a more accurate translation of that phrase is that it was a land fit for wild goats and bees. Um, <laughs> and if you've been to Israel or Jordan, you know what an inhospitable landscape it is. That's amazing. Um, to the Israelites, Canaan was the promised land, but in reality, it was a harsh environment in which to have a homeland. But as, as long as you brought it up, uh, Dr. Schulte, let me refer to what I think is maybe one of the most important mistranslations that really focuses all the issues I've been talking about. Everybody knows Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and, and so on. That last line, um, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, captures the translator's attention. That is a Christian reading. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For Christians, that line reinforces salvation doctrine. Um, the Hebrew translation of that last line is a different reading entirely. It says, I will be a faithful temple worshiper as long as I'm alive. A doctrine of eternal life does not exist in Judaism. Therefore, the two renderings of the final line of Psalm 23 represent a foundational difference between Judaism and Christianity. Let me read the two uh, renderings one more time. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will be a faithful temple worshiper as long as I have life. The translator's choice of the word forever transforms a straightforward Jewish text into a foundational Christian doctrine. Just that one word, which is fundamentally a mistranslation. The mistakes that we have in the, in the Bible obviously has, on many occasions, 
have been of interest to me of all the mistranslations that have happened over the centuries in other texts. And I don't know whether there are any major works on the multiple translations of the Bible and how from the various aspects and the various cultural and historical philosophical aspects, these uh, translations have modified the Bible and I'm sure they probably have. But what I was fascinating is that as your anchor in all of these specific moments of the Bible, they, they have become part of your thinking. They are, they are you. They're not just a presentation of an academic presentation or an academic research. And I think this is what makes your comments about the Bible all of a sudden accessible to the general reader, to the general listener. And that's what I find fascinating. That's, that's, that brings it into a totally different uh, level of understanding the Bible. And here I would also say of the reading and the enjoyment of the Bible as a text and not as a religious fanaticism. Yes. You, you referred to this before because after all, this, you did mention that the Bible is also a literary text. And that has in the past and in the present attracted a lot of readers for the aesthetic pleasure of the Bible and not as a religious document that can cause a lot of problems for individual people and individual nations and characters. Yes, and looking at the Bible as literary documents, uh, there's, there's also the influence that translators have had on the creativity of individual Bible writers. Translators over the centuries have purposely muted the stylistic individuality of the Bible's authors. Um, every standard text of the Bible sounds like it has the same tone or voice. Um, it takes a real discriminating reader to discern the passion of the prophet Amos or the intellectual bullying of Matthew or the verbal dexterity of Paul. Um, you, it's hard to find the Bible writer within the text as a creative entity. And the history of Bible translation shows that these creative qualities have been purposely suppressed in order to make Bible texts pretty much sound the same. Uh, some people have called it a sanitized version uh, Bibleese. Um, Renaissance era English with its Elizabethan poetry was a perfect medium for the King James Version, for example. Um, and it made it sound as if it was dictated from above um, as one document. Um, so holy language became associated with that one tone and that one uh, approach that the King James translators brought to it in 1611. And subsequent translators of the Bible have taken that as a paradigm. That's the way to do it. Because if you allowed individual writers to express their creative and stylistic ingenuity or creative touches, you would not have, the Bible would not be read in the same manner. Um, you, you would see the author, and I think translators of many uh, versions of the Bible do not want you to see individual authors. They want you to see the message contained within that author's particular book.
looking at what you you have experienced in exploring the various translations of the Bible and being extremely familiar with every detail that has changed differences and your overall look at the Bible, has that in one way or the other influenced how you yourself over the years have interpreted and read texts that were not biblical texts? I think what it's done for me, it's made me recognize that all translators need to be researchers. Even a translator working with a living writer and a contemporary text must still be conscious of research obligations. It's just a truism in literary translation that carrying even the simplest word from one language to another can be very problematic in unanticipated ways. And being aware of the mosaic of interdisciplinary tasks and expertise that's required for Bible translation, I think helps any translator appreciate the care that has to be taken with every decision that is made in, in translation process. The Bible translation research involves so many different fields and disciplines uh, from literary studies to anthropology, history, uh, scientific credentials in carbon dating, and spectroscopic analysis of cultural artifacts. Um, at the Dothan Dig, we spent uh, many days with uh, testing and, and so on with a 2,000-year-old olive pit because it had the potential to be a key to dating the archeological site. So down to that micro level, um, I realized through Bible translation study and the appreciation for the research involved in it, that a translator of any literary where of what research task might be involved, even if on the surface, it doesn't appear that there are uh, deep research tasks to be performed. Could one make the statement then that in many cases where the translation does not do justice to the text would go back to what you mentioned that the research has not been taken, uh, has not taken place and certainly it was the inefficiency of the translator to make the effort to expand the research into every detail, whether it is linguistic, whether it's sound, whether it's cultural, whether it's historical, and whatever it might be. Because when I look at multiple translations and see what has not happened, I frequently say it had to do with the fact that the translator failed to enter into the moment of history and culture when a particular work was written. And the other thing that occurs to me all the time, what do we think about the James, uh, the, the translation of that Bible that it's being translated into modern English, the same way that we're trying to translate Shakespeare into modern English? How, how do you see that? Does, that? does that make sense to you? Well, there is a movement within Bible translation, uh, especially over the last 25, 30 years, to make Bible translation relevant, make it contemporary, make it idiomatic, 
1976, there was a translation called The Good News for Modern Man, which tried to be, uh, it was almost a paraphrase. It wasn't trying to equate the, the words with any kind of biblical tradition or manuscript tradition. It was just trying to make sense out of it uh, in very uh, contemporary language and vernacular language. Um, and that trend continues with the popularized translations. And you have uh, the contemporary English version, the CEV of 1995, another attempt to make the language somehow make sense to people in, uh, in, in the way their language has evolved in the, in the late uh, 20th century. This, this of course makes, tear, makes translators tear their hair out um, who are doing serious work because it uh, trivializes the complexity of, of the project. It ignores the manuscript tradition. It uh, does not try to build on the most sensible translation tradition that may exist in the English um, language, uh, of the, of, uh, English translations of the Bible. So yes, this is very much a movement that has uh, a lot of momentum still, and it results in uh, great sales of, of books. And I think that's partly what, what drives it. On the other hand, there are quite a few people, the elder generation, they, they are horrified that they no longer have the sound of the original Bible translation. Yes. And I was wondering whether Luther, I do not know this, whether Luther's translation has also been tried to move into contemporary German language, that I don't know. But it fascinates me the reaction I get from people who know the James version from inside out or outside in, if one can say it, that they refuse, they get furious when they hear a translation into contemporary English. And I find that fascinating. So what, what do we do with the sound of the time when something was created? Yeah, well, uh, it, it, it has stayed since 1611, as I said, in many churches as the standard text. And uh, you will never convince them that the manuscript tradition that it's based on is corrupt. That, that's the word used by scholars. It's a corrupt manuscript tradition because it's copies of copies of copies. And there are intentional uh, errors that were introduced into that manuscript tradition that can be traced. And uh, that's why there are serious retranslations all the time as they explore the 5,300 manuscripts that exist for biblical scholars and translators. Um, it, it's just hard to tell people, as I said, who have buried their family for generations with a text from the King James, or that's, that's the one they learned at their mother's knee. Um, you're not going to give them a scholarly argument when there's so much emotion attached to to that text taking all of this into consideration what do you think the bible research and the outlook of the bible in the future might bring some more changes into the interpretation and the long-range impact of the bible do we think that the bible still has an influence that it had in 1611 yes it does, but it's it's so fragmented in terms of what translations are available to different groups that people are are not reading the same documents. Um, 
they're they're reading a preferred uh, rendition, and it may be casual language. I, I I can see a translation coming that will introduce the word like seven thousand times because our language has changed to a a kind of casual disregard for traditional syntax and and proper grammar and language. And I think the internet with uh, the way texts are written and emails and the casualness with it, I fully expect a Bible translation that will be as casual as internet communication between friends. And it will resonate with people because all they want is for it to make sense because they have a belief system. But if you give them scholarly difficulties, if you give them the puzzles that translators deal with in a translation, that shakes their ability to have uh, a simple faith. And I don't, I'm not saying that in a pejorative way, but it, 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 it undermines their ability to read the Bible and, and understand it in their own terms. And uh, so Bible translation is continuing. It will continue beyond us. And there will be some that will be have, have valid a scholarly foundation and others that will be a, an attempt to get more readers and make it more comprehensible to a wider audience. And that scholars and translators, that makes them cringe, of course. Professor Hoxma, you have presented an excellent interpretation and insight into the Bible. But I, I just love what you just did. And I turn it over to Dr. Valente, please. Thank you so much. Something that I just came to my mind as you were making this last point about how translation will continue on and on. Most of the world's religions, if we think about Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Jews, they all have a relationship to their sacred texts, of course, in the original language that those texts were written. And so Christianity really is an anomaly if we compare the way in which for Christians, there has always been the necessity for the mediation of the sacred text through translation. Do you ever foresee Christians becoming more engaged with the idea of actually going back and learning the languages necessary to access the Christian texts in, you know, quote unquote, the original? Of course, we, we know that there, there, there are many fragments. But do you ever foresee a movement or something like this taking place in the near future? Uh, I really don't. Uh, I think it's 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 way too complicated uh, an undertaking um, for even educated people. Um, you're you're right. Uh, the Hindu and Muslim faith and Buddhist faith they read their sacred texts in their original languages, and the Western Bible right. is rarely taught or read in the original language. But even more importantly, there are no originals. So yeah. what what people would go back to read would be a choice among the 5,300 pieces of text that we, we have in different forms. Some of them are scrolls, some are papyrus, some are codexes, but you would have to choose your own textual tradition uh, if you wanted to engage in that. And that's what translators do. Is, is to select that the best uh, of that tradition to use as a basis for translation. But it's important in 
in English, as English readers and speakers, to understand there is no Bible without the work of translators. Yeah. That There just isn't. That's the way the Western Bible has evolved. And I don't think that's going to change that people will suddenly become biblical scholars at the depth that would be needed to uncover all of the subtleties and nuances of the textual tradition I've been talking about. Well, Professor Huxuma, this has been a most insightful conversation. Uh, we're so grateful that you have spent this time with us talking to us about this very interesting and so important topic about the translation of the Bible and reading Bible as literature. So thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure meeting you and, and talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, very, very many, many thanks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Translation Center, please visit translation.utdallas.edu and keep up with us on our social media accounts, which can be found on our website. Stay safe and take care. We'll see you next time.